Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing part two of Architects of the Modern Premier League. In part one, which I recorded yesterday, I was talking about the how Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish at Newcastle and Blackburn respectively at the early stages of the Premier League really were the architects behind what we now consider the modern Premier League in terms of the importance of ownership, the inexorable decline of the FA Cup and the League Cup respectively, and also the rise of short-term management, you know, instantaneous results, the, you know, the influx of foreign players to the game, the relative undermining of you know, youth systems. And a lot of that really comes into what Keegan and Dalglish did at Blackburn. But the elephant really in the room is always going to be Alex Ferguson and Manchester United because their domination of the, the early years of the Premier League was such that both Dalglish and Keegan keenly felt the desire to compete with Manchester United and really how they went about it. Because really, what we what you rem have to remember is that Manchester United were the first to, to redevelop Old Trafford. In 1996, with the opening of the North Stand, they had a capacity of 55,800. And that was, you know, markedly more than any other, you know, club ground in the country at that time. You know, even as you know, they were getting something like a million pound a game, just from, you know, gate receipts and from concessions alone, which no other Premier League team could compete with at that time. They had the, they were the first team to really embrace sort of marketing in the sense of having multiple kits, a uh, megastore. They also then had on the, the playing side of it, they had the class of 92, they had Ryan Giggs, and they had a, you know, a solid long-term manager in Ferguson. And they came, and that team rose to prominence in the first year of the Premier League, which had a, a massive psychological impact, you know, on how Manchester United were perceived because they came to prominence exactly the same time as Sky Sports. You know, the, the you know the rise of the middle class fan, where the explosion in coverage in you know newspapers, television, and you know the beginning po points of online. So. There were clear challenges that both Dalglish and Keegan faced. And it's interesting that the teams that they chose to compete with United, they were Newcastle and Blackburn, who were relatively speaking smaller clubs that had no recent history of long-term success. And so that success was underpinned by Walker at Blackburn and Sir John Hall at Newcastle. So really, it's the you know, unintended consequence side of it. In other words, because there was this gap between Manchester United and, and the chasing pack, you know, we talked about how the, the London teams weren't in a position at that time to compete with Manchester United. Liverpool were in decline. Everton were nowhere near. It, there really was this void, and the money that they put in was what you know, fueled it and was able to compete with Man United, whereby had they not put that money in, the possibilities of 
United being even more dominant than they already were, which isn't a particularly good spectre for you know English football as a whole. But what fascinates me about Dalglish and Keegan is that there's there's similarity that they both managed the same clubs. You know there there always seems to be. You know, if, especially if you look at Keegan to begin with, if you look at his managerial career in the sense that he, he never got fired, which is an incredible achievement for someone who's managed at a high level for an extended period of time in an era when that was clearly you know changing. And whereby you know, managers of the 70s and 80s, you would have three, four, five years. Where now, you know, in the modern Premier League, you really realistically got somewhere between six to eighteen months, depending on the club and the situation that you've, you know, got yourself in when you take a job in the Premier League. So, start with Keegan. You, there, there. If you look at his whole managerial career, there's always there's a flowchart to it. So, it's always a. Team that is in some form of decline. So Newcastle were on the verge of being relegated to the old Division Three. You know, Fulham had spent multiple years in the, you know the bottom division of the football league. You know, Man City had fallen on hard times. Even England to an extent. And so all of those jobs, you know, had him coming in as a savior, a messiah. That's a huge, you know, part of what Kevin Keegan's managerial, you know, prognosis was. I'm coming in, I'm going to make everything better and, and take you to the promised land. But in each of those situations, there was always an element with Man City, with Fulham and Newcastle, new management. You know, you know, Fulham, for a lower league team, had that element of glamour. You know, They play at Craven Cottage, the beautiful ground on the River Thames. You know, They had the success of the 70s with you know, Bobby Moore. You know, Man City were a glamour club. You know, and even you know, with the dominance of United, there was still a large interest in Man City because of their you know pitfalls against Manchester United's success. So, in other words, you know, they got not only relegated from the Premier League, they got relegated from Division One. You know, the the element of sleeping giants of you know Man City in almost inexorable decline. However, they did have ownership, and there was always a strong sense that you know Man City would eventually get back there. And each time, you know, Newcastle, their stadium was being redeveloped by Sir John Hall. When Mohamed Al Fayed takes over Fulham, he starts redeveloping the ground. There's always a sense of the club has to be in a positive situation. No matter how badly, however low the division they're in, no matter what their you know, recent past in terms of success or relegations, for Kevin Keegan to take over, something good has to be happening. He wasn't going to be the person that turned up with the ground being rickety and the owners having issues with the fans. It would always have to be a rise of positivity, at which he would then latch onto that. And the fans would then, rather than see it as, let's say, Muhammad Al-Fayed, rather than necessarily seeing it as an inevitable consequence of Sir John Hall taking over, Keegan would be the one that, you know, would be the front man for that. Even with when he took over England, you know, they were just about to move into Wembley Stadium, which was going to be one of the you know, largest football stadiums in the world, one of the most expensive, one of the most glamorous. And it's that kind of level... <laughs> that he would always have to come to. Even when he took the England job, there had to be a you know, 
groundswell of support from the public and from the newspapers, which then gave him the, you know, I suppose, the mandate to take over. <laughs> there was always... And the end product was always that he would resign. It, you know, I said in the previous podcast, it's almost like repeating the same errors, you know, with declining results. But I was probably being a little bit harsh in that regards, purely on the basis that with Fulham, he originally starts as general manager, you know, which is something very similar to what Kenny Dalgleish did. In other words, Kenny Dalgleish, when he was at Blackburn, was originally sort of a, you know, a, a proto-director of football. But both of them always had this desire to, to manage. But there was always an element of... With Keegan, it was the sense that, you know, his business success, you know, his lifestyle, you know, when he wasn't managing, he could live out in Spain and play golf. There was always that part of him that knew that if it got too tough, he wasn't going to be the type of personality type that would just suffer year after year as a sort of professional manager would, who just goes wherever, you know, the jobs take him, who would sit there and be still working in his late 60s. That was something that Kevin Keegan certainly was never likely to do. And with Dalgleish, after leaving Liverpool, there was always, both of them in their managerial careers, uh, specifically Dalgleish's after he leaves Liverpool, is always slightly short-term. It's always sort of two to four years at the absolute sort of most. And there's always a sense that, that years one and two had to make a large amount of progress for him to sort of stick around. So when he goes to Blackburn originally, yeah, he is director of football. But once he sees, you know, the, the scope of the project, there's that desire to, for him to then take over. Because he sees that, you know, once when he joins Blackburn, similar to, to Keegan, you know, Blackburn are near enough, you know, being relegated from the first division. But once he sees that not only can they get into the Premier League, is that there is this vacuum for a team to really compete with United, and that he has, in the short term, the ability, he has the resource, the playing staff, and his ability as a manager to take them on to that sort of next level. One of the things I find very interesting, really, is trying to sort, especially with Keegan in sort of ninety five, ninety six, because. There's an element of myth that has sprung up over the 95-96 sort of Newcastle team. Because they were, you know, 12 points clear of United, you know, at Christmas. And because of the element that they were very exciting and they played brilliant football. Now, people have actually sort of almost, in fact, sort of crunched the numbers. And really, when you actually get to it, is that they didn't actually score that many goals. If you compare them to sort of the modern game now, is that they were fairly pedestrian. But I think what you have to, I suppose, remember is that there, the teams that were competing with Manchester United in the first sort of three to four years of the Premier League were not particularly glamorous. You had sort of Norwich, you had Aston Villa, and they were teams that were sort of almost plucky underdogs. And, you know, with the Norwich team, they, you know, they were always unlikely to win the league. They got very close to it, but eventually their defence wasn't quite good enough. They didn't score enough goals. And, you know, it's almost never taught that they would be overtaken when the sort of pressure came on. And the, sort of the defining game of that is when Man United went to Carrow Road and just battered them. 
and with Villa, you know, they had success under Big Ron, but the sort of the underlying element was that you know Villa in the you know they'd had this sort of success in winning the European Cup in the early eighties. A couple of years later, been relegated. You know, again they'd been relegated. You know, and they'd only been back in the sort of Division One for sort of two or three years. And you know, although they they were a talented team, you know, the that pinnacle for that team was preventing United from winning the treble by beating them at Old at Wembley in the League Cup. But the rise of Blackburn and Newcastle because they had famous managers, name brands in Keegan and Dalglish, because they were new, because they those teams hadn't been in the public eye. They were new and fresh in a way that Norwich and Villa were, but they didn't have the backing. The point was is that when you saw how much money you know, Jack Walker had put in, when you saw how much money that Sir John Hall had put in, and the stadiums that they were building, in other words, Ewood Park becomes transformed into a strong modern stadium. Same thing about St James's Park, whereby Carrow Road and Villa Park weren't transformed in a way. You know, the ownership of Villa had been deadly Doug Ellis, who'd been there for an extended period of time. The ownership of Norwich weren't in any way, shape, or form as you know, wealthy, and they weren't as well known. So as a result. Yeah, whereby if you it was an easy thing for the media to latch on that Sir John Hall was you know part of the redevelopment of Newcastle that Jack Walker you know was a you know steel baron made good who's want who's basically sort of come in to then take Blackburn to the next level it was something that you know, really fed into a narrative which Villa and Norwich didn't so one of the one of the things that I find probably most interesting is that the 94-95 Blackburn team are probably one of the least well-known sort of title-winning teams. They're not particularly well-known in the sense that their narrative is completely sort of different. I would describe them as the sort of least satisfying title win. In other words, they go to Anfield, you know, the, you know Kenny Dalglish's spiritual home, but they lose three one at Liverpool. <laughs> you know, Man United draw at West Ham, and the sort of it almost feels, even at the time, as if Manchester United had blown that title rather than Blackburn win it, which is probably slightly unfair on Blackburn, but. The, the narrative doesn't quite work. In other words, Kenny Dalglish wins a league title at Anfield, but he wins it for Blackburn. It doesn't quite sort of compute. It's not the sort of fairy tale ending that most people would sort of want it. In the sense that as much as people enjoyed Blackburn winning because it wasn't Manchester United winning, there was always that element that, you know, Jack Walker's money had underpinned it. <laughs> that... You know, Kenny Dalglish probably wouldn't have ended up at Blackburn had they just had a ordinary, you know, Division One owner who didn't have the money and the desire to put it in. And the team itself, they, I've, I've, they're pretty much a a stopover team. It always feels as if every single player that played in the ninety four ninety five Blackburn team 
ended up having success somewhere else. In other words, you know, Graham Lasseau, he starts his career at Chelsea, joins Blackburn, but then rapidly then after, you know, Blackburn starts to decline, he ends up back at Chelsea and then goes to, you know, the England in the World Cup in 98 as a Chelsea player. <laughs> you know, Colin Hendry, yeah, it's fantastic that, you know, he won the title at Blackburn. That's the height of his, you know, domestic career. But really, as a football player, you know, his height was really being the Scotland captain at World Cup 98. He was, you know, played, you know, for Scotland in Euro 96, which was, you know, the last time that Scotland had qualified for a major tournament, which is, you know, at the time, no one expected Scotland to go, you know, 20, 30 years without qualifying for a major tournament. Henning Berg wins the treble at Manchester United. Tim Sherwood gets his three England caps at Spurs, even though he was... You know, a young English centre midfielder who, you know, lifted the Premier League. He's the only, as far as uh, probably two or three years ago, he was the only English captain to have ever lifted the Premier League title. But his pinnacle of his career was the three caps at Spurs. You know, David Bassey, you know, goes to, you know, Newcastle and Leeds. You know, he started his career at Leeds and, you know, goes to World Cup 98. Not as a Blackburn player. Even, you know, Jason Wilcox you know, gets a big money move to Leeds. That's where he gets his England caps. You know, Alan Shearer, top scorer, you know, Euro 96. And Newcastle. When people think of Alan Shearer, they now think of him as a, you know, Newcastle legend. You know, the Blackburn part of his career, even though that was his actual pinnacle as a player, has become somewhat, you know, sort of diluted by history. Even, you know, Chris Sutton, you know, the time when he was most likely to end up playing for England was more likely at Celtic than it ever was at Blackburn. You know, it's, you know, a lot of, you know, if you look at Flowers and Shearer have been signed by, from Southampton. You know, Sherwood and Sutton have been signed by, from Norwich. It was really that kind of, you know, process. It was basically, you know, they had the money, they signed all of these players, they achieved what they needed to do, which was, you know, what their, you know, aim was. And then they all back, went back to their clubs or, you know, their previous clubs. And I think the, the elephant in that room is always the, you know, the Cantona suspension and the impact that that had in the sense of that had Cantona been there, you know, had played for that, you know, those all of those months, would they have got the extra two or three points? Had Cantona played against West Ham on the final day of the season at Upton Park, would he have you know, converted the one or two chances that they would have needed to have won that league, the chances that Andy Cole ended up missing? Which then really leads into the 95-96 Newcastle team. So Blackburn declined pretty rapidly. In other, and one of the interesting points is, is that Dalgleish stands down from managing after 94-95. When you'd have thought, well, he's won the title in you know, on the final day of the season at Anfield, and now Blackburn are going into the Champions League. Surely you would have stayed on for at least that year just to see how well you would have done, how well Blackburn could have done in the Champions League. But he doesn't, and you'd have, and I suppose the thought I always get about that is that actually, as a manager, he never, you know, managed in Europe. In other words, he takes on the Liverpool job in the you know aftermath of the Heysel disaster, and as a result, you know when he was having his success at Liverpool, European football they didn't play European football, so, and I think a point of that is really that 
there's a shrewdness in how Dalgleish views Blackburn. In other words, he sees it as an interesting project to take up because he wants to get back into to football. In other words, he doesn't go back to Liverpool. He doesn't go back to another Premier League team. He sort of goes a little bit off the beaten track, but is always leading to the point where he would want to compete against Manchester United. He's a Liverpool ex-player and ex-manager. Of course he wants to you know, dethrone Manchester United, but he always is aware of Blackburn's limitation. There's no real youth structure. You know, there is no way that you're going to, you know, essentially boost Blackburn in terms of the support. You know, it's a, a small Lancashire mill town. It's not going to get any bigger. It's not as if you're going to be able to attract crowds of 30, 40, 50,000 people. Really, the 94-95 is a short-term title win because in reality, you know, Jack Walker wanted that title, but he isn't going to be there for 10, 15, 20 years as a... And Abramovich was able to, as some of the, you know, owners in American sport, you know, Jerry Jones at the Dallas Cowboys, or, you know. So as a, re- as a result, when analysing Dan Gleish's managerial career, I think it's cogent, really, to note that he, I've always, I've described him, you know, as a proto-Guardiola. In other words, what Dalglish is very good at is picking up a project with a short-term goal and using the resources in front of him to then gain that success and then move on. So, and it wasn't until I really sort of looked into it deeply that actually there is a sort of comparison to be made. In other words, Dalglish goes from being a player, you know, on the sort of slow decline, you know, at Liverpool, even though they're still, you know, in European Cups, they're still winning. The knowledge is, is that, you know, eventually Kenny Dalglish's, you know, career was winding down. So they give him the role of player manager, and he's already got an already very successful team. You know, he makes a couple of shrewd signings and, you know, really pushes them on to, you know, even further success. But it wasn't based on youth development. You know, the, the signings that he made were because, you know, Liverpool had quite a lot of money. So, you know, and they had, the, they were a big name. So they were able to sign the sort of cream of domestic players, you know, sort of your John Aldridge's. And he then, you know, in some ways improves the, the, the style of football and they still have the success. But it's one team. And eventually that then leads to 89 and the Michael Thomas game. They age together. There isn't a long-term progression plan to for the next great two or three Liverpool teams, which is what Ferguson is absolutely brilliant at, is basically ascertaining how he's going to be successful, not just this year, but three or four years it, you know, into the future. And that's the one thing that Dalglish has never really proven as a manager. So basically, and this is where this Guardiola thing comes in. In other words, Guardiola has all of his success at Barcelona, and then he kind of gets worn out by, you know, the pressure of managing and the success and all the rest of it, and then he leaves, goes on his sabbatical, and returns to sort of Bayern Munich, football management. But at Bayern Munich, they've already had all of this fantastic success, they're already a great team, they already have a huge budget, fantastic youth development and all the rest of it, and so they end up having, you know, success under Guardiola, 
And that's almost, to an extent, somewhat similar to what Dalgleish does. Because, you know, in the 90s football, outside of, you know, really, United, in English football, there wasn't a huge... There wasn't the teams with the dominance that you, we have in today's football, where you have, you know, basically four or five-star organisations who are able to dominate an entire country. But what Blackburn offer is similar to what really, you know attracted Guardiola to Bayern Munich is that there was money there was a gap and he was able to then fill that gap because he was his understanding of football was simply you know I can get Shearer I can get Flowers I can get cream of you know young talented players at mid table teams I can then mold that into an, a unit that can you know be competitive and win the title which is exactly what he does. But that he doesn't leave any kind of long-term thing. In other words, he works out that that Blackburn team are very unlike, are unlikely to be able to be competitive with the Ajax team, the Milan team, the Barcelona. That He knows that they're nowhere near competitive at that level. And so he drops out. He doesn't leave any kind of long-term plan. And the players really react to that by leaving and going back to where effectively where they came from or onto bigger and better things. So within a few years, you know, Blackburn are relegated. And, you know, a lot of, you know, Kenny Dalglish's, you know, managerial career after that, he realises that actually Newcastle are his best bet for competing against Alex Ferguson. In other words, Keegan has resigned, you know, they have, you know, more money, more fans, and they have an owner that is able to give him the resource he needs. But by this point... His weaknesses as a manager are quite clear. He's really a short-term manager. And, you know, whereby in sort of the early 90s, when he's at Blackburn, he has the ability and the money that, you know, most other Premier League clubs didn't have. So he's still somewhat in touch with football at this point. You know, he... So actually, you know, he doesn't have to, you know, scout Europe... Because he just signs, you know, Shearer, Sutton, Flowers, all of those. But they're all readily available. They're all, you know, there's no element of having to, you know, sort of acclimatise into English football as if you would start, it, which is what you know Wenger has to do when he signs sort of Vieira, Petit, you know, Grimondi and Remegard and, you know, Anelka. There isn't as many challenges you know, it's not as difficult in that regards. But by the time you reach, you know, when he's managing Newcastle in 1997, it really is difficult. You now, to be a decent manager in the Premier League, to get those kind of incremental gains to compete with you know, the dominance that is United, you need to be able to sign good foreign players. And at that point, his, you know, He's slow. He he's a little bit long in the tooth at this point. So, he signs Barnes and Rush, who were just you know. It, you could sort of argue it could have worked if the squad around it, but it was as if he's not. He hasn't learnt as a manager. In other words, his success at Blackburn wasn't you know a bit cutting edge. It was simply fairly traditional. It was pretty much what he'd done at. You know Liverpool, which was to use the money that he had and the prestige of Liverpool and his prestige as a manager and as an icon to sign the best domestic players. 
which he doesn't quite have that ability at 1990s Newcastle because they're nowhere near as big as United. They have a budget, but it's not, you know, it isn't able to blow teams out of the water like he was at Blackburn, which is why eventually within sort of a year to 18 months, he's realised that he can't really compete with United, you know, Newcastle on decline, and he repurposes Keeganism in the sort of European Cup run, the great Barcelona win, and getting to the Cup final, you know, in 98-99, which is an element of success, but it's clearly, and this is where we're getting back into, you know, the rise of modern football. In other words, it's, the you know, you end up getting interested in the Cup if you can't do well in the league. You know, it's, you know, I think the element of, Keegan and Dalglish is that what they had when they were at Blackburn and Newcastle respectively was they had years. In other words, Keegan had as many years as he wanted to build the infrastructure, the youth development and all the rest of it at Newcastle to try and compete in the long term with Manchester United. But he wasn't really interested in that. He wanted to get the you know league as quickly as humanly possible. He wasn't willing to build let's say, two or three years and get young players from the lower leagues and basically slowly but surely build up to a crescendo, let's say, 98, 99, 2000, to then get you know, to a point where they could compete on a year-by-year basis with United and to do the things that United couldn't do. In other words, by the time that the class of 92 established themselves at United, it doesn't matter how many good youth players are in there, they've all, their midfield is already completely packed with players at their absolute peak. And so, you know, buying for United in the late 90s becomes very difficult. And they almost have to get, you know, foreign players simply because there's no one domestically who's going to be able to get past Beckham, you know, Scholes, Keane, Giggs, even Nicky Butt, you know, those sort of things. But what Kevin Keegan wants and what Dale Gleish wants is, I want to have won this league within two to three years because I'm not really, I don't particularly plan to be there in four or five or six years, which then leads really to what, you know, the, the win now mentality. You know, Kev, Kenny Dalglish doesn't improve, you know, Blackburn's youth system. He doesn't improve Newcastle's youth system. Neither does, you know, Kevin Keegan. When Kevin Keegan goes to somewhere, you know, when he goes to Man City, he spends thirteen million pounds on Nicholas Anelka. You know, when he's in the championship, he gets Stuart Pearson, he gets Ali Benabia. They play fantastic football. They get to think, 99 points, they score 100 goals, and it's fantastic. And you know, ask any you know, Man City fan, and they will wax lyrical about that team. But it wasn't long-term. It was simply, I don't want to be in the championship for that long. I will throw this money at it, and we will get there, because you know, that's where I want to go. And it's that pace that gets quickened by their actions. In other words, they don't, in, you know, Kevin Keegan doesn't intend you know, to diminish the FA Cup, but, you know, unintended consequences. That's what happens when you basically, you know, end up with, you know, getting teams from the lower leagues, you know, pushing them up with, you know, investment, you know, large-scale investment, is that none of that investment ever really, outside of, you know, St James's Park being a nice stadium, it didn't really put those clubs into a long-term position to succeed. In other words, Blackburn have been relegated, Newcastle have been relegated multiple times. It's that kind of principle that comes out of it. I think the sort of ultimate irony is is that, you know, Keegan and Dalglish's managerial career at these 
at Newcastle and Blackburn look very modern, whereby it's actually, you know, because they're competing against Ferguson, his methods look, you know, positively anti-Davillian in comparison, because he's the one sitting there getting rid of some of the, you know, experienced players like, you know, Steve Bruce, because he knows that he's got younger players coming through, and he's building this very carefully, putting, making sure there's just enough experience in their midfield and their defence and their attack, so that they can be long-term dominant and successful, and to build on their already huge advantages in terms of youth development, in terms of the stadium, and all the rest of it. So let, let's for a moment sort of play counterfactual history. What if Newcastle, instead of buying Tino Esprit, bought a defender or a midfielder, and really a little bit like how Leicester did in their title-winning campaign, tightened it up at the back, and won the league in 95-96 instead of United. The real question that you have to ask is, would that have functionally changed history? Would, 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 things have, would Newcastle have then kicked on and done better? I don't think so. I, I think in the end, surely Manchester United coming back from 12 points down... To after the trauma of the year before where they'd lost the title on the last day of the season and then six days later lost the FA Cup final in an upset to Everton. And you know, with the Cantonal thing, he only makes this sort of return against Liverpool in October of that year to then get the 12 points back and then to have you know won the title in a thrilling circumstances in this great comeback and then to have won the FA Cup final <laughs> against Liverpool in the last you know, sort of five minutes, how does he react to that title win? Well, he gets rid of Steve Bruce, he gets rid of, you know, you know, Hughes, and he then kicks on. He then, rather than anybody else would say, okay, this team is so fantastic, I'll keep this team going for another year, he takes it to mean, oh, it's fantastic that I've won the title and the double, but actually what I need to do is still get rid of those players because in the long term, they are not going to lead us to the Champions League, which is really the next stage of his career. So I've always seen that in some way, shape or form, the, the Tino Espria signing for Kevin Keegan it is really a sense of his populist demagoguery. In other words, he can't just win the title because if you look at the wider picture what would have then happened is this, is that the 94-95, you know, Manchester United team that nearly won the double, you've got the elephant in the room of Cantona and the suspension and all the rest of it, and the, I suppose, the concept of had he been there, they'd have won the title and the, the FA Cup. And then you've got the next year where he sort of makes this triumphant return, and it's kind of one of the first examples of, you know, you know, Sky TV. In other words, you have the huge build-up. It's you know a lunchtime kickoff. It's Manchester United versus Liverpool. It's the return of Cantona and how that gets hyped up, and it became appointment viewing in that regards. But had they then lost the title to Newcastle, people would have then said, okay, they won the first three Premier League titles, and now for two years in a row, they ha the team has aged. They've you know they've lost that kind of winning edge that they used to have and even when Cantona comes back that wasn't enough and they end, and they've lost the league again 
to another, you know, example of an expensive team, you know, whereby Hall and Walker and, you know, name brand managers in, you know, Keegan and Dalgleish. But then you would have still had, you know, 96, 97, even if they signed Alan Shearer. The point was, is that you would, Scholes would have still developed, Beckham still developed, but still developed, you know, King, you know, became, you know, a, a more well-rounded player. They would have still carried on and won. They were still already in that direction. They were still going to end up with, you know, you would still end up in the new camp. You still end up with United winning the, the European Cup. The narrative would then change that, you know, the, you had the first great Ferguson team and then the second great Ferguson team that starts in 97 and then culminates in the treble in 98-99. You know, Newcastle still would have declined, even with Shearer, because in the end, the, the makeup of that team, the youth development of that team, was always going to be in a position that they couldn't, in a long-term basis, compete with Manchester United. So, effectively, and that feeds into Keegan, in other words... He can't just win the league because Dalglish was the first person to knock Ferguson off of his perch. And the Newcastle team would always be then thinking, oh yes, they won the league to a declining Manchester United who then you know got rid of you know, the likes of Bruce, a couple of the older players from that first great Manchester United team, then reformed into an even stronger team that then went out and dominated English football and won the treble. So in some regards, his he didn't just have to beat Manchester United in ninety five ninety six. He had to absolutely smash them. It couldn't be the same thing as Dalglish, where you get the the poor denouement, where basically it feels as if Manchester United lost the title rather than Blackburn winning it. He needs you know to for his own glory. It has to be twelve points. It has to be brilliant football. It has in other words, you cannot. It's almost a bit Custer esque. It always has to be attack. It always has to be a glorious victory rather than any sense of actually just getting over the line. I suppose the the ultimate sort of irony of how Kevin Keegan as a sort of architect of the modern game is that he's the one that sows the seeds of his own decline because eventually, you know, once he realises that he can't compete with... Ferguson in this, you know, he, you know, and the pressures of Newcastle and the sort of pressure that he'd end up putting on himself by being the, the absolute centre point of Newcastle and that he ends up resigning in a very emotional manner. In other words, you know, you can almost say that the, the shock of the losing in, you know, 95, 96 and the knowledge that clearly United had stepped up a gear and that he was in no way positioned, you know, in terms of managerially to compete with Ferguson because what Ferguson does which basically buries Dalgleish and Keegan is that he's a long-term manager he is an old-school manager you know he goes back to the you know the dynastic managers of the 60s 70s and 80s he's a one-club man he builds every single part of it the ground the training ground the youth structure the coaching you know he builds that brand whereby the difference is is that Keegan brings his personal brand to Newcastle. You know, to an extent Daglish brings his personal brand, which is very much short term, goal orientated, money orientated, but it, it can never 
it will always lose to someone who has a long-term advantage. Ferguson does have advantage, but he makes those advantages. So eventually, Keegan then goes for a different project. He ends up at you know lower league Fulham because it's a challenge, but it's also a way in which he's effectively... Keegan always does well in the lower leagues because he, his managerial philosophy is that you have to go to a place where everything's already on the up. In other words, Mickey Adams has done some of the hard work and taken them into the second division out of the third division. Keegan doesn't want to be a third division manager. He will manage, he'll be the sort of general manager of a second division team, but eventually the, the end product is he ends up as manager where, you know, taking them into the first division with the knowledge that he has the money and the capacity to then take them into the Premier League. Much in the same way as Dalglish doesn't see himself as a Division 1 Championship manager, he but he will basically be part of the project if he knows that the money that he has and the backing and the ability uh, for him as a manager to persuade people to join is that he can then basically go on and kick on and take them to the top of the Premier League. So in other words, Keegan at, at Fulham, he ends up basically buying a load of first division players, dumping them into the second division on you know salaries, knowing that eventually, even if it wasn't you know linear, they the couple of times they you know miss the playoffs, eventually they will get there in the end. But so, I suppose the irony is is that you could understand Keegan and Dalglish if they were managing in the modern game, where basically you have to get results within two to three years, or you'll basically be sacked or moved on is that both of them had all the time in the world in the early 90s. You know, they did have, you know, when owners were more than willing to spend five, six, seven years on a manager, they had that time, they just didn't want to utilise that time, which is what Ferguson does. Ferguson bats time. In other words, Keegan and Dalglish are 2020 managers. Ferguson is a test manager. He's quite happy, to, even if you lose a year, to then move on to the next stage. Because in the long term, because of you know his managerial philosophy, Man United will eventually you know overcome and overwhelm. If you're going to describe you know ninety five ninety six as a monument to Keegan, in some ways it it works. In other words, if you had to name a more which team do you think is more famous or more well remembered, it's the ninety five ninety six Newcastle team. If you compare them to ninety four ninety five Blackburn. It's because everyone remembers, oh, you're 12 points ahead. I would just love it if we beat them. Because in, in some ways, Keegan's populist demagoguery, in other words, his meltdown is on live television. And his desire to beat Manchester United in his own way. He wants that Newcastle team to be his personal embodiment of management. And it is, there's something sort of admirable and dangerous in it at the same time, is that we you can feel an, an element of sympathy in the sense that he his emotions and the way how he reacted to them and to Ferguson's winding up. In other words, Ferguson is in complete control. Keegan is the smaller man who is, you know, just too emotional for his own good, heart on his sleeve, in that when he's you know, when he slumps down on the Anfield hoardings after you know, Stan Colin Moore's goal, is that his team almost end up with a sort of a romantic edge to them in that they're you know sort of doomed to this kind of near miss. But what makes Keegan a populist demagogue is that he doesn't learn from that. He merely just manoeuvres it you know to Fulham, whereby he can still do exactly what he did previously, 
but with success because there's no, in other words, there's no championship Ferguson, there's no Division Two Ferguson who is going to be able to stop him. Which is why when he gets to, you know, become England manager in sort of 99, it's fascinating is that I suppose the counterfactual thing is is that if he'd just gone out there and just, in let's say Euro 2000, and just attacked, put all of his attacking players and just said, go for it. They couldn't have done that much worse. They might have even had you know an element more success. But there's something fascinating in that is that when he manages England, it's almost as if he wants to be seen as a proper manager. In other words, you know he sort of ends up, you know, he starts off with three five two, but eventually ends up with four four two. You know, he is almost as if he wants to be traditionally seen as a good manager. And because of the step up in international football, he doesn't want to just be seen as this kind of cavalier manager, which is what he was at Newcastle. But this is where his, because this is where his intellectual bankruptcy comes to the fore. There's no second act. He hasn't learned anything from losing the title in ninety five, ninety six. In other words, he doesn't recognise his resource. You know, he has in two thousand a spine of a team in Sol Campbell, Beckham. Owen, Neville, Scholes. That's a, 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 a. They're young, they're experienced, they're talented, and he's got these young players coming through in Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Stephen Gerrard, Lampard, Barry. But he doesn't. He doesn't utilize it. He doesn't even utilize his sort of bully pulpit, the, the strength of personality and leadership that he has. He does. You know. He doesn't say to the British public, "We're going to Euro two thousand with this very young team." However. I think, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to play some very bright attacking football. We may not, you know, get to the... We might even get knocked out in the group stages or the quarters. However, by the time we get to the World Cup 2002 in Japan, South Korea, I see this team as being well up there in, you know, competing for the, the, the World Cup. He doesn't do that because it, he, he's a short-term manager. You know, it, part of his England career is basically... I want to be taken seriously, and I want. But he still has the demagogue part of it. He still wants that success, but he needs it to be instant. Which is why he over relies on an aging Paul Ince. He picks Dennis Wise, Seaman, Adam Shearer, of which three out of five of those all retired, and you know Wise barely had a cap after that. And yet, within the same sort of time period of the aftermath of Euro two thousand. Rio gets sold for eighteen million pounds. Frank Lampard gets sold for eleven million pounds. All and what's sort of interesting is is that he doesn't, you know, in getting knocked out by Romania, you know, in a very sort of painful moment, you know, literally being seconds away from the quarter finals, and then you know Phil Neville does that terrible tackle and gives away the penalty, but he doesn't resign then. At which point, you know, I suppose it wouldn't have been that. It would have been, you know, it would have been expected and it wouldn't have been particularly dramatic. In other words, he stays on. Even though technically there's part of him that thinks he's not quite up to the job, he just stays on anyway. And yet ends up being that within two games, he ends up resigning anyway. But he does it in just pure theatre. He resigns. You know, which overshadows the last game when he he resigns tearfully in the toilets, you know, in in the change rooms seconds after the game. 
In other words, the, he uses emotion as a sort of smokescreen to, to cover for his lack of depth tactically and development mentally. In other words, he just is the same manager. In a in way that's quite interesting is that when he ends up you know going back into the Premier League, he ends up going to Man City. It's almost you know the the dominance psychologically that Ferguson has is that he understands that he is never going to overshadow Ferguson. He's never going to take a team that will surmount Ferguson in you know the late nineties to early two thousands. But it's almost as if he goes. But if I can go to Man City and we can you know beat. United in the Derby with me as manager, you know. In other words, I've lost the war to Ferguson, but I can win the odd battle. Much in the same way that you know, with Dan Gleish, is that when he realizes, you know, after leaving Newcastle, that he can't compete with Ferguson, is that he ends up going to Celtic as if he's almost saying, well, if I can't, you know, compete with, you know, Ferguson, if I go to Scotland, where. There is no Alex Ferguson where I can then, you know, take, you know, he, he's looking, you know, a lot of the end sort of last two or three jobs that Kenny Dalglish does. He, he's a man looking for a role. So in other words, he, he goes to Celtic, but he doesn't go as manager. He goes as director of football. He puts John Barnes as the sort of coach slash manager. You know, much in the same way, Keegan decides to go to Fulham. In other words, both of those people are getting away from Ferguson, but they're, dipping their toes sort of in the water but not jumping in fully in other words within a few months you know he had the um uh, they lose to uh, Inverness Caledonian Thistle and they both leave he then go ends up sort of you know a few years in the few years as sort of on the outskirts of football and then makes a you know sort of emotional return to Liverpool and part of that is almost as if he sees the moment at which Ferguson is eventually going to retire, and that you know the way how English football was at that period is that there would be a gap where a team could then take on the mantle or win a league title. But by this point, he still hasn't really, you know, he's still a little. He's an old school manager. Some of his signings, like Andy Carroll, are old school. Some of his methods are old school. In other words, Dal Gleish sees that window of opportunity but he's not going to be the one that goes through it. It's a younger manager in Brendan Rodgers that nearly takes you know, Liverpool to that maiden Premier League title. Much in the same way, if you look at the end of um, Keegan's managerial career, he goes one, after a few years again, in the you know, outskirts of football. He, he, when he takes the Newcastle job for a second time, he says... I haven't watched a huge amount of football. There's an almost an element of ego to it. It's as if one last go round, one last challenge, and it's a way of, you know, in other words, a whole new generation of people that would have been much too young to have seen Kevin Keegan as a player, and then another generation that wouldn't have actually seen him as a manager at Newcastle would have heard the legend of it. He's almost bringing back that one last attempt at, you know, sort of getting the crowd and, you know, having the love that Newcastle fans pushed onto him. You know, the thing is that Man City doesn't do a bad job. He takes them into Premier League, he takes them to ninth. You know, he still has a talent as a, as a manager, but it, it's limited. It, it could have been better. You know, when he goes to Newcastle, he does quite well there, even though, again, he's a little bit long in the tooth, much in the same way Dan Gleish is. But he, he does the same process. He you know, They play the attacking football. They spend quite a bit of money relative to you know their position in the league. And eventually he, he resigns in, you know, fairly... You know, 
he does the right thing. In other words, he could have stayed at Newcastle under the conditions that, that you know, Ashley wanted him to stay, and they weren't right. He and he's he's a proud footballing man. Both him and Dalglish, I have a lot of time and respect for, but at the same juncture, there's always that element of you know dangerous populism. In other words, one of the the elements that make him England manager is the Romania, not in two thousand but ninety eight, where he's the um, colour commentator for ITV against Romania in the group stages. And England get an equaliser, and he says, there's only one team that's going to win it from here. And it's, you know, intimation that it's England. And part of it is his understanding, is that he understood intrinsically what the man on the street felt and wanted. They want England to go ahead and be the only one to win. They want an Englishman who has the sort of unimpeachable football, you know, nous that Keegan has. In other words, I've won the Ballon d'Or. I've won European Cups for Liverpool. I've been a manager. You know, I've captained my country, all the rest of it. And they want to believe in him. But even though he's wrong, and, they, you know, Romania go up the other end and score a winner, instead of being considered, well, actually, you were wrong in, a, you know, that that was a ridiculously stupid thing to say, is it gets seen as a positive. Him being wrong is seen as a positive. And that almost is the beginning of the sort of groundswell of support from the public and the press box, which allows him to be England manager. In other words, they're seduced by the potential of Keeganism at international level. But there's just abundant evidence that he was unsuitable, that he didn't have the tactical now, that he hadn't learned. Every time Kevin Keegan goes onto the golf course after leaving a job, he, nothing comes out of it. He doesn't get any better. Much in the same way that Kenny Dalglish, for all of his uh, skills as a coach, and I think in hindsight, you know, Dalglish was a better coach than Keegan, and I'd say to an extent, Keegan in some ways was a better manager. Cause, because if you put them together and created a hybrid and put them in the right team in the 90s, they would have fought the sort of titanic battles against Ferguson's Manchester United. In other words, whereby Keegan was able to, you know, buy foreign players with a relatively large degree of success, Dalglish never really was able to do so. <laughs> whereby, you know, Keegan could set the media and get interest and get fans going. In other words, you know, part of the element of modern game is seeing fans in replica shirts and his role at Newcastle helped doing that and seeing you know Newcastle fans in the black the iconic black and white stripes. In other words, I think with me, my one of my cousins was a, as a young child, she was a Newcastle fan. Even though she lived in Hampshire, never been to a Premier League game, never been to Newcastle, but because of the power of Kevin Keegan and that, you know, she was interested in Newcastle. My wife's sister, who's not interested in football at all, was for a while a Newcastle fan in nineteen. It's that kind of power and the use of, you know, Sort of you know, Keegan's use of commercialism, whereby Dalglish was a better tactician and was better able to, to improve the players that he had. But at the same time, he was never a particularly effective manager in regards to dealing with the, I suppose, dealing with the media and really, you know, being a able to build interest. In other words, you know, he, he's a lot better when he's at a club where basically, like Luke, where Liverpool, where he's just considered a hero, and so people don't put as much interest in what you know his press conferences, bits and pieces, really like that. I suppose to sort of summarise and to really sort of conclude, Ferguson 
is the last of the Mohicans. He creates a sort of Death Star empire in Manchester United. <laughs> and as a result, you know, Keegan and Dalglish create the modern Premier League as a antidote, as a way of competing with United and the dominance that they have. And a lot of what's happened in terms of Keegan being the an accidental visionary. And, and what that's led to really is unintended consequences. In other words, neither Keegan nor Dan Gleish was deliberately trying to create a world in which managers were, you know, essentially spare parts and that could be, you know, m- sacked year by year. In other words, a situation where you have at Chelsea where they just go through managers almost on a, a yearly basis where every year the teams in the bottom sort of third of the Premier League change managers even two, three times a year just to survive. In other words, neither of them wanted a world in which the FA Cup wasn't that important. But for them... To compete with United, winning an FA Cup for Blackburn and winning an FA Cup for Newcastle, as good as it would have been, as enjoyable as it would have been, would have just been small fry. You know, in other words, they see the future, but they're not the ones that embrace the the success from it. It's you know people like Guardiola, it's people like Mourinho, which then leads to really where does Arsene Wenger fit into this? So by the time you get to nineteen ninety six and Arsenal will get rid of their manager, is that the two people who were best able to compete with Sir Alex Ferguson in that time period was Dalglish in winning the league with Blackburn in 94-95 and Keegan in you know taking Manchester United all the way in 95-96. And in both ways, they had, some to some extent, failed. In other words, Keegan, they blow the 12-point lead. With Blackburn, they win the one title, but then fall away very quickly. They you know, completely flame out in Europe. And Dalglish moves on, and then he takes over at Newcastle, you know, and isn't able to compete with United there. So, Arsenal don't get Keegan. Arsenal don't go for Dalglish. Both of them are not able to compete with... Ferguson. So you look around the league, who can they get in to replace Rio and who can they get in to compete with Manchester United? As we mentioned at the sort of the in part one, well, how Wilkerson was dour, he was a you know, a few months away from being sacked by Leeds. He wasn't a you know, a, in a position to logically compete with Ferguson, well, maybe maybe Terry Venables, but at that juncture, what you'd have to say is is that Terry Venables had you know managed England, but he was again looking for, he wasn't looking for a long term project to overtake Ferguson, and there's nobody else. There's not Big Ron. There's not Jerry Francis. None of those men. All of them have been streets behind Ferguson. So in other words, the only way that you can realistically compete is someone completely new and that's what for, what that's what Wenger brings in because he brings in the professionalism he bring he improves the training he improves the nutrition he improves the players that he has in other words they you know the Arsenal back four are still a strong back four but they also become able to pass they score goals 
and his knowledge of French scouting system, which no one had, not even Ferguson had, allowed him to pick up, you know, Vieira, Anelka, and that's what leads them to then, you know, in other words, the failures of Dalglish and Keegan are pave the roads to Wenger. In other words, Wenger is the only person at that time in 1996 who has a realistic chance of you know building a team to compete with United and then within basically 18 months they've won the double and that kicks off a whole four or five year period whereby it is Arsenal against United. <laughs> in this telling really Wenger is the is the revolutionary, the radical that basically changes English football. But in the end, if you now look at his last few weeks as a you know Arsenal manager now, is that he's become a traditionalist just in the same way that Ferguson did. In other words, you know, he's really again another sort of last of the Mohicans character. He has full control over the youth system, full control over the transfer budget, the scouting you know, the tactics, everything else that he has full control over, and his methods are now looking almost increasingly aged. In other words, you know, he ha- keeps focus on the same players and all those other bits and pieces. But really, the people that have built today's game really are Dalglish and Keegan. They're the ones that have now focused on the league. They're the ones who first dropped the, the cup as an important element in you know, building what is considered a successful team. You know, the win-now mentality. You know, managers coming in only dealing in the short-term. Short-term, goal-orientated projects. Signing foreign players, not focusing on the youth development. The league, as we now see it, is their league that they've created. And they've created that league really in some regards as a way of, you know, counterpinning, you know, Ferguson and to an extent Wenger's, you know, long-term dynastic success and really the league is theirs because in the end now that you know Wenger is leaving Arsenal now that you know Ferguson has retired from Manchester United we're unlikely to ever see dynastic managers ever again it now really is you know in other words you know as I've said previously in the podcast Guardiola's managerial career is you know very much, he's you know the son of Kenny Dalglish's managerial career. You know Guardiola takes over at Barcelona, having had a fantastic career at Barcelona, and you know limited managerial experience. Well, that's the same thing as Kenny Dalglish, and as a result, you know, and then they've you know whenever Kenny Dalglish left, you know when he left Liverpool, he went on to mini projects. You know Blackburn with some success. Newcastle with to a lesser extent but both of those times he took the job the reason he took the job was because they fit his tick list you know bit new you know redeveloped stadiums ownership with money which is pretty much exactly what you know Pep Guardiola does when he goes to Barcelona when he goes to Bayern Munich it's because they have a fantastic stadium they have ownership with money and they have a position of dominance same thing with Man City. And that is whereby, and if you look at sort of Keegan's managerial legacy in the win-now kind of category, that's very much sort of what Chelsea do and have you know signed up for, is that you get a charismatic leader, someone like Antonio Conte, who comes in, boosts the place, gets the result, and the second it goes wrong, he's out the door and moving on to the next project. 
the Premier League really is, modern Premier League, you know, the architects are Keegan and Daglish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>